Welcome to the Directions Mag Geo Inspirations podcast series with Joseph Kursky. Well, greetings, folks. Joseph Kursky here from the S3 Education Industry Team. I'm here with someone that I admire quite a bit, and I just recently saw him at the GIS in the Rockies conference, David Hansen from GeoJob. David, greetings. Well, greetings to you as well, Dr. Kursky. I admire you as well and a lot of your work. I've followed you for a while, and I uh, really appreciate the things you're doing for the geospatial industry and education and outreach. So uh, it's an honor to be here talking with you. Well, thanks for your time. I know how busy you are, and uh, it's much appreciated, and I think will be appreciated by those tapping into this uh, recording. David, here's one of the things that um, I was wondering about. You know, as we try to encourage folks coming into geospatial from a wide variety of backgrounds, and we're starting to see that in geospatial, could you describe how you got into this field and perhaps any key moments, you know, we have these sort of nudge moments in our career, any moments that stand out along your journey? So I was fortunate enough to be introduced to GIS in high school. There was a program uh, which took place there. I've been studying GIS since I was 15 years old. Uh, And at that time period, it was in the early 2000s with the 3X series. So I'm probably Mm -hmm. one of the youngest people that is certified on the 3X series. And uh, I'm a certified Avenue developer, which uh, that'll kind of date my uh, level of knowledge there. And I was fortunate enough to be uh, coming into it when the paradigm shift took place, moving over to geodatabases in the 8 series. So when I was uh, 15 years old, in the summer I turned 16, I interned at a local government. And I did the city of Gulfport, Mississippi, where I live, the second largest city in uh, Mississippi. And uh, I went and converted a lot of their uh, information over from uh, shape files to geodatabases and helped develop some of the schemas and do a lot of work there. Some addressing work where I determined, you know, where, uh, you know, where point address points were for their planning department. It was real interesting being possessing those skills at a young age that adults were looking up to as it being something where, you know, you can bring something to the table. Uh, after that, I went into working at utilities uh, for a short while for some power cooperatives as nonprofits. Then I worked for a nonprofit doing economic development and some policy uh, analysis that was uh, involved after Hurricane Katrina with housing and population returns, that kind of stuff. And then I went back to the city of Gulfport, and then I went back to uh, the Southern Mississippi Planning Development District. So I had a kind of a back and forth there. And then I started at GeoJob. And uh, I've been at GeoJob for quite a while now. I want to say uh, that I'm coming up on my eighth year in GeoJob here. And GeoJob didn't really focus on uh, kind of products or software development as much. And we kind of had a local uh, perspective that was uh, focused to the southeastern United States. And when I came into GeoJob, I came in during a paradigm shift there as well, where we were shifting over to a more national uh, perspective. And then uh, with some of the things that I developed down in the Mississippi area, because I'm at the Mississippi Gulf Coast and I'm the director of our Center for Research and Engineering, which I founded, uh, that's where we developed uh, admin tools and clean my org and a lot of the products that kind of went global using the ArcGIS marketplace. And once again, great timing, paradigm shift was taking place because that's when Esri was introducing ArcGIS online, which I'm sure we'll talk about a good bit. I have some strong opinions uh, there. Um, and then we developed the administrative tools or an administrative tool set to make it easier for a lot of uh, end users of ArcGIS online, particularly, you know, schools, uh, large mega corporations, that kind of stuff. So that's, that's kind of my pathway on there. Some of my nudge moments I'd have to say is whenever I became a really good technician, they said, great, become an analyst. And uh, the thing about that is the skill set that's involved in being an analyst is completely different than the skill sets involved in being a technician. I became a really great analyst. They said, great, you know, how about you start managing these databases, which was a completely different skill set. So it's a story of change. And then uh, it became great. Well, you do all this. And this great thing called Flex is out there. And we had Flex and Silverlight at the time. It's like, learn to be a front-end developer. These are (laughs) skill sets again. And then Flex, of course, takes the hard death. And then it becomes, hey, become a JavaScript developer. And then after that, uh, you know, it becomes, hey, you built this great application with you and, you know, one of your buddies down in, you know, down in Gulfport, Mississippi, and it's taken off and everyone's using it and everything. Uh, how about you move into product management and start managing timelines and then start managing a dev team. And then I became vice president of software development. And now I'm the, the chief operating officer for the company. And it's this, it's this constant growth, constant shifting, constant 
change. And I know when I spoke in, um, in Denver at GIS in the Rockies, that that may have been some of that message that, uh, that, that may have resonated with the audience is this constant growth and this constant change. And really the story of GIS is the story of growth and the story of change. This, this transition I talked about getting into it, I was 15 years old with the three, two series and learning tech, learning just, you know, technician based proficiencies. And then, Kind of progressing all the way forward to like being an executive in a technology company and taking all of those steps on that staircase all the way up that's part of it that journey is really pivotal and really core to what goes on in the geospatial industry so that's some of my hot air being blown out there but uh what do you think there joseph oh i love it before i return to some of these key points that you're raising which i think are really pertinent uh and interesting what's it like what is your day-to-day -day chief operating path? officer neil job chief is operating founder. Ah, He's okay. our chief executive officer. Gotcha. So, yeah, and I've uh, known Neil for a long time. Yes, yeah, super guy. Super great guy. So that's the thing. You know, the CEO is about the philosophy and the vision of the company is what Neil's really doing there. And Neil really takes us in strong new directions. And some of the things like uh, he was the one who took the leap to empower me to be able to do what I wanted to do with software development. He's the one who's taking the leap and leading with our UAV division and having that vision of the future, you know, where the COO, I'm, I'm a lot of times the nuts and the bolts. I'm, you know, budgets, bottom lines, price points, you know, what's our go-to-market strategy? Uh, are things in the engine room running well? So I'm, I'm more of a, Neil's the captain and I'm the head engineer is kind of where we are. So it's a, it's a great, it's a great balance and a great relationship. And it takes uh, different philosophies of life and uh, it takes being complementary to each other in areas that overlap and then not necessarily being antagonistic, but having, uh, you know, uh, differing uh, primary objectives to get us there, right? So Neil sets the course and then it's up to me to get us from point A to point B. Being a, a, a person that serves in GIS and education, I love the fact that you are actually using GIS in high schools. Yes. You know, oftentimes we, uh, we think, oh, you mean we've been working on this, David, for well, since 1992. So mm -hmm. that is a long time to be hammering away, knocking on all the doors and tapping on all the windows with schools, <clears throat> administrators, uh, superintendents, individual teachers, and wondering, and we, we, we occasionally get good stories and we've seen personally uh, the impact that, that this makes in a person's, not just their educational journey, but in their life. Uh, but it's just so great to to hear about that you started. And when I was in high school, I was actually making paper maps on big poster boards. And in one of your presentations that I've seen, you showed some maps that you made uh, when you were a, a, a younger person. I oftentimes show that too. I actually didn't have GIS when I was in high school. So it was all on, you know, hand drawn. I had urban renewal districts. I even had yes. address ranges on my maps. Super geeky. What teenager cares about or even knows about address ranges? So I think you, you and I can share some, yeah, some interesting early stories. But I always tell students, I'm sure you do as well, embrace maybe some things that you do that nobody else cares about. Run with those. Don't be afraid to be nerdy about or passionate about or enthusiastic about certain things, even if nobody else cares in your circle so of friends. I've seen some of your maps from back then, from your presentations. And if I recall, now your background was related in a uh, hotel and hospitality with your, with your family. Is that correct or am I misremembering? Well, yes, my, my folks, my mom was a teacher as well, but my folks both, you know, you don't think about this when you're a kid, but mid-career changing pathways. So bought a motel, moved us out to Colorado. My early, you know, uh, days were, I didn't have a front yard. I had a parking lot nice. and it was grand because I would meet people that would come and stay from all over the world, got to hear their stories, meet the people. Some of them came back every, every year and stayed at the same, you know, lodging. And so that kind of sparked my love for, you know, places and people. And um, yeah, it, it was a fascinating, actually uh, a really interesting childhood. And, and some folks on the, listening to this, they might know of, uh, maybe they've stayed at a place where you, you know that the people running the establishment actually live there as well in an apartment behind the office. That was what we had. We didn't have an offsite place. We actually lived right there. Uh, you know, four kids, two folks, and uh, it, was, it was a bit crowded, but uh, wonderful uh, experiences. 
have a similar background in a way. It was uh, not necessarily a hotel, but my, the street I grew up on was my uh, great grandparents, my grandparents, and then my family. It was a family street. And uh, my grandparents oh. kept veterans for the Veterans Administration, where if there's a veteran who necessarily doesn't need to be hospitalized, but can't live on their own for an extended period of time, they do extended care there. So I grew up with the equivalent of a dozen different uh, mm -hmm. grandfathers at any given point, all with different stories that have been around the world and been different places. So uh, that was pretty shaping as well, particularly being someone from the South Mississippi area, where a lot of times when people think about Mississippi, they don't think about technological innovation. They don't think about, you know, uh, growth or change or, you know, uh, forward thinking progress. And as a matter of fact, even when I talk about the products that we develop and where they were developed or the background of the people that developed them, a lot of times people kind of raise an eyebrow when they hear that some of the most popular geospatial apps in the Esri ecosystem right now that are made by partners are developed in South Mississippi, that that's where our Center for Research and Engineering is. And I think that um, some of that stigma is related to uh, our education system and how it is. Uh, so it's also surprising a lot of times when you say, you know, it's good to hear a high school student got exposed to GIS. Well, even more so in Mississippi, like that's kind of a, a, a rarity of a rarity there, right? But I wanna tell you something that I ran into uh, in my own personal life that I think is a subject you care about as well which is whenever I completed it at my high school education in GIS, two weeks later, I was working for the power company doing geospatial analysis and, and, and doing great things uh, inside of that power company. And I go to college, like literally, it's two weeks after high school. I started college in a summer semester. I went and started working at the power company at the same time. Like that's what I was doing two weeks after high school. I show up um, and there's no, there's, no, there's no cohesive curriculum to bring me from this primary education over into my education at the mm -hmm. college level. So they want me to take all these intro classes and, and nothing related to GIS. And one of the geography instructors, not even one of the professors, one of the instructors is like, no, this kid's a certified geospatial technician. Can we put them in some of the classes for GIS? So they put me in the senior level 400 classes. I walk in, the adjunct instructor- You're 17 years old. <laughs> yeah, just, I hit 18 two weeks ago. Okay, 18, yep. Right there, just fresh 18. The, um, I walk in and the instructor looks at me and it's the guy from the city of Gulfport that I worked at who also who was working with the data I had developed. I, I quit working there two weeks before he showed up. He's like, what are you doing in here? I was like, I'm taking your class. He's like, just put your head down and don't say anything crazy. Um, so, you know, Watkins 400 level class. And then the problem is like in the first, you know, two years, I'm, I'm done with the curriculum at that university. I have to stick around another two years to finish off what's happening. All the same time while working in the industry, publishing papers, doing things, and and if there was that joint curriculum between the primary education over into the um, you know into college, then it would be more beneficial in this case. But a lot of times the colleges are very very rigid. Like these are your freshman classes, you know, these are your sophomore, these are your junior, your senior. This is how this curriculum works. So you know, one of the things that's happened at the university that I went to was I was kind of a flagship of the first that's coming out of that high school program. And more mm -hmm. and more kids started coming to the high school program because I was the first, I was in the first cohort that went through it. So what they've had to do at the University of Southern Mississippi is they've had to transition their curriculum to move their intro to GIS classes down to their 100 level from their 400 level and make them freshman level classes. And what's great about that is by forcing that shift to take place as a result of people having geospatial education coming into the university system. Now, since those are freshman level classes, it's easier for a business person to take that as an elective. It's easier for a health person to take GIS as an elective and so on and so forth earlier on and start applying these principles as they move forward in their education, health or business or marketing or anywhere else. So what's kind of some of your thought processes around that, Jason? It grieves my geographic heart when a student in a secondary school, for example, gets really excited about GIS, that teacher that's the champion leaves or that student goes to a different school and they don't have it. Now, there are things that they can do on their own, sure, but I think you're pointing to the value of having a good teacher, mentor, professor along the way to help help guide you is, is so critical. So when that happens, there's this yeah, disjointedness and it's not good. I think though, on a positive note, there are some uh, wonderful developments in, in education. I've been involved with that Geotech Center mm -hmm. project with community colleges. So folks that are listening that aren't familiar with that, it was an attempt and it still, it still exists. It's, it's in its 12th year or so to get these community college instructors 
to talk to each other, to share ideas, curriculum, et cetera, and also some research in mm. the effectiveness of GIS in education, but also to develop some model courses. Uh, what should we be including? We're not just going to teach like it was, you know, that song party like it's 1999, David, <laughs> but we don't want to teach like it's 1999, right? That's right. Anyway, the point is, uh, let's keep moving forward with our curriculum. And many of these community college instructors, for example, um, are, as you are aware, they're sort of lone wolf GIS people. Like they are their own, they are the only GIS instructor at that college. Now there are many exceptions, but the idea then to bring these people together um, and, and move it, move the entire GIS education platform forward, uh, I think is, is something that um, is a, is a significant achievement. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, certainly the learning to think spatially report from the National Research Council was a big, a modest leap forward where it got a lot of people thinking, hey, we need to be teaching this throughout the educational system and you're a prime example of what can happen when a person actually, if not in grade school, at least in, in you know, high school starts going down this pathway and not everybody will turn into a David, right? Not everybody will go into geospatial, but maybe they will be like your colleague who's on the call here, Carrie Choles, where they'll be in business or health or some other field and, they'll, and then they'll be in a, a role where they're now using geospatial as a part of their tool belt, you know, like a, a tool on their yes. tool belt which yeah. as you know is starting to take root. Yeah, the GIS jobs are going to still modestly increase, but the, the ones that are even more rapidly increasing are, are in health transportation where you're not a full-time GIS analyst or a technician or something like that, but you, you are expected to use the geospatial technologies um, as part of your everyday or at least weekly work. And that's so, pretty exciting. So I have two thoughts on that. Um, and at a high level, the first one is I do some outreach through a Kiwanis Club to their mm -hmm. K-Kids program. And uh, what I've found is a lot of times geography is being removed from the earlier portions of K through 12. And it's actually falling back to librarians to do it a lot of times is what I've run into. I went into several places. I don't know if it's just in Mississippi or, you know, what's going on around the country, you know, because I'm just thinking on the U.S. education system here is that, you know, geography is being kind of hamstrung there. And a lot of times I've found that like I said, uh, I'll interact with the librarian ends up being the person who's talking about geography. And I'll introduce them to different resources they have to be able to self-teach uh, there. But before we jump into that second subject, which I have around my hiring practice and how it relates to geospatial, uh, what are your thought processes on that K through 12? And what, what my data points are saying is kind of an eroding, particularly in that first, uh, that kindergarten through fifth grade of removing geospatial and geography from the education system. Oh, heavens, we could have a whole uh, different conversation about this. But a, yeah, over my time at the USGS, for example, which was from the Jurassic to the Holocene, a long period of time, <laughs> uh, I would work with educators and they, over that time span, they would say, I'm, I'm able to do even a, a smaller part of what I did last year because of all the other pressures that I have in the educational system. So sure, there's been articles, as you know, about, um, about the challenges that geography and some other disciplines have faced. Uh, on the on the encouraging side, though, we're seeing a lot more use of spatial thinking, geotechnologies by people that are teaching history, math, yes. uh, STEM, etc. Uh, STEM has in itself lent a a boost to what we are all about, you and I, because it is all about you know let's investigate a real world problem let's gather data let's mm -hmm. let's assess it let's make a decision maybe we act on it in our community and actually go out there and change things for the better uh, citizen science uh, service learning another another point you know you talked about Kiwanis which which I salute and um, acknowledge 4H and other yes. after school uh, programs have really attached themselves uh, scouts, Girl Scouts, Boy Scouts, yeah. to geospatial in some significant ways. I mean, you've you've been to the ESRI conference. Those those blue shirted students from 4-H, uh, that's almost my favorite part of the conference. Is just talking to those people and they're doing krieging and stuff, and they're you know 14 yes. years old. They're just they give you great hope for the future. Not not to base it all on tools, but just their the way they're thinking about their own making a difference in the world and their pathway, and they're just so so inspiring. So I think that yeah. It, Sure. So we're working in some, we're working with formal, you know, disciplines and educators in those disciplines in uh, primary and secondary. And this is global. It's not just USA. 
but we're also working with um, after school programs, libraries, museums, 4-H, Kiwanis, et cetera, like you were saying. So I think, and, and, and you know, that's working with teachers and students. We're also working with uh, superintendents, state ed tech directors, uh, social studies coordinators, science coordinators, and, you know, so national uh, organizations. We're trying to, again, tap on all the windows and doors. We're doing it from the bottom up and from the top down, but it's, it's not just us or you, it is the entire community. So anybody listening to this, I just encourage you, yeah, get involved with some educational institution, whether it's a community college, a university, a, a, a primary, a secondary school, an after-school club, see if you can make a contribution there. Yeah, and that's, that brought me to something else I was thinking about, which is kind of, you know, you, you've spoken about this one educator that makes a difference, you know, and I think that um, what we have to realize is it doesn't have to always be this monomyth of someone like dedicating themselves to, you know, for, like, mm -hmm. like cultivating geospatial in a, in a large group of people. If you, if you can do outreach and reach out to, you know, 10 kids and one of them is legitimately interested, that level of impact, that return on investment as they echo through time is going to create huge, huge gains for the impact that you have positively on the world and on the species. So if you can find, I, I'm, you'll find a lot in my uh, nomenclature when I talk, I talk a lot about species level decisions and how we have to start making those. Um, so but that's, that's a definite ball of wax uh, over there. But uh, whenever I'm making these decisions, a lot of times I think like at our Center for Research Engineering, Gulfport High School, where I learned GIS is literally five blocks that way. So the kids will walk down here after school, like at 3 p.m. school lets out and they're in high school, they'll come down or even some of the seniors around lunch and they'll come hang out at our Center for Research Engineering and they'll do, you know, just kind of unpaid internship in a way. It's just kind of a place for them to hang out. Sometimes their parents will pick them up here and they'll go and see what we're working on or the clients we're working with and understand how they think of it as mapping, how maps are, you know, uh, doing things. So, you know, just realize that if you can just take a couple of hours and interact, particularly whenever they're young, like when I go to like K kids with Kiwanis club and I go to like these like third, fourth and fifth graders, they absolutely light up and shine when they start understanding you know that you can get paid to do mapping and you can get you can start looking at the world how they relate i think a lot of times we are born with more spatial concepts and understanding like intuitively like the first law of geography that everything's related but closer things more closely related than distant things i think i think that we're aware of that we start we start figuring that out like animals realize that humans realize that we're young, but sometimes we add all these other layers of decision-making in this kind of like process. And we start like stripping the spatial out because it's not being taught. And then there's also some real theories I have on um, disjointing geo from spatial because there are things we can analyze spatially that are not geo. If we start examining time as distance and the fourth dimension as duration through a, through a higher, uh, a higher dimension, which is what which is what really physicists look at it now. We can start looking at time spatially as a spatial concept of like uh, you know an infrastructure that we are traversing. Uh, these are these are real concepts. These are things that are being spoken of. Things that are being thought about that uh, I think we intuitively understand. And then we add so much noise on top of it that we start getting away from. It. There's even things that are like we call just like our gut thinking that are taken into context uh, geospatial analysis that we are doing intrinsically without realizing it's happening. You know. Um, so that's that's some random stuff out there. No, no, that's a you're you're pulling together a lot of really good threads and ones that I personally believe in. And I think the chief one is, you know, again thinking about those listening to this, mm -hmm. we're yeah we love the tools, you know, and we love spatial data and and we love being able to do things with the spatial data with the tools, but it really goes beyond that. It, and your your work with the even the local school is a great example and as i've heard you talk about at different conferences as well that it is really imperative that we embrace spatial and critical thinking in decision making in society right in transportation human health agriculture energy water etc i mean the planet is not going to wait around for us to get smarter about this so we really need to i mean we, we all of us in this industry really have this sort of global earth ethic that we need to be doing this. It's not an option. And so yes. that really drives us forward, doesn't it, on all yeah. of the things that we do in education and with, with other things with geospatial. And so when people come to an event like the one I talked to you at uh, recently in Colorado or the ESRI conference or AAG or any other sort of geospatial focused event, it's, 
yeah, this, this actually matters. And this is why we're doing it. Yes, it's great if we can get paid doing it. And yes, it's great if we can, you know, learn more things. But ultimately, it is to enable a better world. And I think even, you know, those local high school students coming down, they, they get a sense of that, right? That, that you're not just doing this because, you know, it, you're getting paid and then by, at five o'clock you get to go home. No, it's you in, 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 a, in part, you and I and others in the in the industry, we'd be doing this in some capacity, even if we weren't getting paid to do it. Right. It is really a part of our being. So I'm going to say something that I know how much you love geography, and I'm going to say something that I want you to hear me out on, and it's going to initially sound combative. I think one of the best things to happen to the world is the weakening and destruction of geospatial geographic concepts in a way. Because, and here's what I'm saying with that. I am no longer as closely tied to the first law of geography. It is no longer, I can impact just my community. I can set here in Mississippi, develop software that goes around the world and changes. We serve over 6,000 organizations globally. I, sure, I travel. I travel a bit. I speak at conferences. I've never left the United States except for one time in my life. And I'm here helping multinational corporations, nonprofits, World Food Program, you know, helping, uh, you know, UN-based uh, organizations and all that. And, you know, even 40 years ago, that was an impossibility. Like, not really an impossibility, but very, very improbable that a small organization of less than 20 people with people based in Tennessee and based in you know, Mississippi, we're going to be able to make this global impact. So this ability to be able to influence not that which is just closest to me in geographic proximity, but to have this global reach, I think that that is uh, something that is powerful and is new. And it's something I talk to the students about a lot, is you don't have to leave your community in order to make a global impact anymore. And not only that, you have access to global resources that you previously would not have. It's no longer just reading an encyclopedia. It's being able to go online and be able to learn these things, to be able to, I mean, for instance, you and I, you're in Colorado right now. I'm in Mississippi. We're exchanging these ideas in a way that will impact people around the world that listen to this podcast and will impact them in different places and different times. Whenever, if we were to look at, you know, what our options were for sharing information a few decades ago, completely different. Now, the greatest teacher I've had is the internet. The greatest teacher I've had is YouTube. Uh, whenever I was, it was 2006 and someone turned to me and said, learn flex development. Sure, I went out and got a book, but in reality, it was uh, looking at Mansoor Rod's uh, blogs is really where like I got a lot of Mansoor, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, it was going to the, the forums and learning from other people. We no longer have to find a master of the craft locally in order to be able to learn. We can reach out, build global relationships, and it's a two-way street where once we grow to that point, we can impact the world externally as well. So if anything, this weakening of the first law of geography is allowing for greater influence uh, both on ourselves and greater influence that we can externally have. Well, a couple things, sir. Uh, okay. I love this. Um, that it just a, just as a one example of of uh, what you're talking about. Think of when a researcher, young, old, in between, makes a story map of yes. their research. Sure, they can still publish in journals, and that's all good, you know. And they nothing nothing taking away from that. But now they've got this global reach through. The student from Canada, the right whales project. Um, why are what right whales dying in the Saint, Gulf of St. Lawrence and what can we do about it? it, it having that global platform, yeah, it's, it's really amazing. And it's, it's just on the story map alone, there are over 1 million of them now. Uh, just wow. past that milestone six weeks ago, late to 2019. Wow. And then the second thing is, yeah, just, just saluting your efforts. We have talk to countless universities where just as one example of them using your tools for the ArcGIS online administrative uh, uh, tool set that you've got that it has saved them not just agony and anguish but thousands of hours of of you know 
of hours that they can now do other things and not yes. run administrative uh, tools. They're using your uh, tech, your tools to, to help them to be more efficient. So I just, I want to thank you for all the good things that you're developing, but also to tie in that, yeah, we've got this amazing platform at our fingertips mm -hmm. um, that uh, can, uh, in just, just one more about that. When, for, for me, one of the moments that was, you know, kind of stands out from this past decade is when Survey123 was, was crowdsourced enabled. So now, you know, the end person didn't have to be in your organizational account. They really didn't have to know much about GIS per se, but now they can collect data on your broken sidewalks <laughs> in the community or invasive species or the weather or water quality or whatever. So now it, it, it's got this global platform that, you know, just like globe.gov and, and um, iNaturalist and those communities, the, the eBird.org and so yeah. on. So you've got ordinary folks, you know, that whole citizen science movement emerging, and it's been around for more than 100 years now, right? But, but now they're enabled to map and not just map things, and I'm sure you say this yeah. to people all the time, it's not just putting points on a map, it is, do we understand it better, or in a richer way, or in a deeper way, and then what can we do about the invasive species, or the water quality, or the litter, or the broken sidewalks? If you ever want to hear me scream about something, uh, let's start talking about Kogon grass as an invasive species to the southeastern United States, but you mentioned that in Denver, actually, in September. Mm -hmm. Yeah, really big on that. And what the problem there is we're, we're figuring out real great ways to track it, but not real great ways to do anything about it. So it's kind of frustrating where we're showing decision makers like, yeah, this is spreading. This is the rate of spreading students following the interstate system. Because as man develops this interstate system, you're developing this perfect pathway for Kogon grass to follow. But that's a whole other thing. I do want to give a shout out to the uh, team that is working on Survey123 because they have technologically pushed so hard and done so much great stuff. Like they, they were the first team, in, to my knowledge, to really get Esri like thinking about pushing on webhooks. And now we have that coming into ArcGIS Enterprise. And like, that's pivotal. Like that's allowing integration with other systems much stronger. I love the way they've taken uh, some portions of an open platform of like, like uh, I think it's like GeoODK, I think it's called or something this such, like at some of like the base there. And uh, really, you know, made that um, extremely accessible as part of like Esri's ecosystem. I think that that's really awesome. The more we can get people out there doing things like that. And what's great about it is I always have to tell people that uh, it doesn't have to be a map to be spatial. And I love that Survey123 isn't a map, but it's spatial. You know, it can go back and hydrate an mm -hmm. options dashboard. It can go back and, you know, hydrate into these other information products, you know. Um, so hydrate, always, that's a good word, hydrate. I might have to use that in the future. But well, you're right, the, the, the way that these tools are connected, so you create a survey on, I've got one on walkability, and then I've mm -hmm. got a story map that explains it, and then I've got a, the results of what I've got in my global walkability, is your community walkable, and if so, how, and if not, why not? Uh, and then I've got the operations dashboard. Yeah, it's just the idea is how these tools are connected is so powerful. It's, yeah, they're powerful on their own, but when they're connected, oh my gosh, mm -hmm. we can do great things. Even simple things like, how walkable is your community or where's the invasive species in your community, plant, animal, et cetera. Mm -hmm. I'm right with yeah, you. Absolutely. I mean, I'll tell you something about hydrate also. Uh, if you like that word, you'll, you'll be tickled by this. The, uh, the place I picked up that little piece of nomenclature was at the uh, Esri office in Denver, was in Colorado. And uh, it was a guy named uh, Andy Hendrickson, I believe. Remember, remember Andy from back in the day by any chance? He was real big on ArcGIS Online being a foldable structure with tags and all kinds of stuff, which I have strong philosophy debates on the introduction of folders to ArcGIS Online versus uh, it being an, a completely indexed system by tags. Uh, strong opinions on that. If anyone ever wants to have a strong debate on that, try to convince me that introducing folders was the right idea to simplify things, then uh, you and I can happily talk about that. Anyone out there in the internet world that wants to mm -hmm. reach out, please come talk to me about folders. We can have a deep discussion on folders versus tags. ArcGIS Online, and it's one of the quotes that I had in an Esri blog last year where I, it was literally, I was rambling as I want to do, as you can tell. Uh, I was rambling at a UC. And uh, one of the things I said is that ArcGIS Online is the greatest repository of, of global geospatial information in the history of the species. And I meant it. Now, what the part of the quote got cut off at the end and was not included is, and we're not doing enough with it. Uh, so I can imagine why on the Esri blog, perhaps that last part was taken off. But I think with the introduction of data science, uh, more more seriously being introduced 
into um, our geospatial toolbox and more data scientists coming to us and realizing this wealth of data we've been sitting on where a lot of the data scientists are a lot more hungry for data they have the tools they have the knowledge they have the you know they have all this great stuff they don't have this well curated data that we're just sitting on you know um i think that that perhaps is what tempers that second part of the quote with, and we're not doing enough about it um is the fact that we 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 are seeing a more of an influx of data scientists and they're they're becoming aware of us and we're becoming aware of them and their techniques and we're seeing this wonderful uh kind of marriage of professions uh take place and i know that that's a hotly debated uh subject right now is the data scientist term so well it's a competitive world in higher education as you know I, in part i i understand okay we've got to we've got to rebrand we've got to recraft one might argue that geospatial has been about data science since before data science was even a term right mm -hmm. and we've always been about big data before big data was a term and so some of this is yeah one might argue a, a sort of a recrafting of what they already have but on the other hand i salute their efforts uh, and we are actively working with those data science program emerging mm -hmm. data science programs in universities saying hey don't forget about the g part of yes. data science there is a geospatial part and just don't as you as you form your programs don't leave that part behind or think oh it's only in the geography department across campus mm -hmm. or whatever and speaking of which your point about the way that the world has has worked in terms of the technology and geography yeah there were probably oh a, a half a dozen articles as you may recall in the in the late 90s about you know the death of geography and even whole books i think written about this mm -hmm. and in some ways yeah it is grand to be able to have these tools and this platform to be able to impact your community but also the world in the, with the same set of technologies on the other hand, with the, with the issues and the problems that you and I have been talking about, water, energy, yep. invasive species, et cetera, geography does matter, and, and, and things have patterns, relationships, and trends. Interestingly, what I get a lot from students is, mm -hmm. hey, Joseph, I, I've, I've mapped and studied this, this particular set of variables, and there's no spatial pattern. And, and the implication is that, therefore, the analysis is no good. And I say, well, it's valid. It, if there's no spatial pattern, that's interesting as well. It doesn't always have to have a spatial pattern. And maybe, like you're saying, David, it, it, getting them to think more broadly about the value of, of analysis, it doesn't always have to result in, in a map or mm -hmm. an understandable geographic relationship trend, et cetera. Yes. It can still be a valid contribution to science. So let's talk about spatial versus geography. So here's, here's something here. We, we oftentimes marry them as if they were conjoined twins. But in reality, I believe we can divorce the two. Uh, I am very big into the idea of understanding the patterns of our world, not just by applying spatial to geography, but creating using spatial as a metaphor in order to better understand complex topics. So if we were to take a, uh, you know, represent our Z and our, our, our X and our Y axis as, you know, uh, investment of money versus cash flow, you know, like what, what's happening, what's cash in, what's cash out, you know, and then taking our Z and making that time and looking at that as a time space cube of what's happening with it. I think that in reality, what we can do is take some concepts that we've refined very, very well in spatial analysis for interpolation. And now go and take those and apply those to statistical interpolation instead and examining time as space and our variables our uh, our variables as our other axes we start to be able to communicate patterns because it was like i was talking about earlier where as we get older we start to uh get rid of some of our intrinsic understanding of the spatial analysis of what's happening things that we just understood as part of survival you know mm -hmm. but if we if we go and we, we go and we examine something in a way that we present it in a spatial way uh, even if it's a not a geographic concept if we take these non-geographic concepts and show them in a spatial way there's so much value to that because people begin to intuitively understand it. And there's the old saying of, you know, a picture's worth a thousand words, but a map's worth a million, you know? So that's, that's where I think if we can take that and stop thinking, stop putting ourselves in the box of thinking that it's gotta be a map, 
you know, and stop putting ourselves in the box of thinking that even if we were to examine something spatially, that it must always be the real world space. Let us go and take things which are more complex and have relationships and examine those relationships through saying that uh, not necessarily everything is related to everything, but closer things and more closely related to distant things, but instead say concepts instead of things. And instead of thinking about it as geospatial space, just think of it as space instead of geospatial space. Um, so there's, that's some uh, things that I apply even to the way that I approach life and the way that I approach uh, my understanding of this universe that I'm contained in at this time, you know, and perhaps it would help the listeners to understand that my areas of study uh, from college are geography and geology, computer science, applied mathematics and comparative religion. So you're hearing a very strange uh, mixture, perhaps of ideas and terms here that are a result of that kind of stolen soup of uh, education. So. Oh, I love it, sir. And and that speaks to what's exciting to, I think, all of us um, now in the world of geospatial technology, and that is we've got this expanding, you know, diversity of perspectives, backgrounds from people. We've got people in here now from business and sociology yes. and, and philosophy and art and, and other disciplines that are really lending a lot of richness to uh, not just the discussions, but mm -hmm. uh, what problems do we do we tackle? How do we tackle those problems? And so I think it's a really exciting time. Sure, the tools and the data are wonderful, and I'm going to note about that in a moment, but but the people in it have always been, right, the, the things that have been most attractive to people. You almost never meet someone who is, oh, I was in the world of GIS, geospatial, geotechnology for a while, and, and I didn't like it, so I got out of it. They, it, you know, that almost never happens. I mean, it's not like the Hotel California where you, you can't ever check out. You know what I mean? It's not like well, that. But, but, yeah. but, and, and we've had people leave S3, for example, mm -hmm. uh, but they almost always go into something related. Like they're, they're going to start a, a, a solar energy company or they're doing something enviro-geo-focused. Another thing, though, that I wanted to mention related to what you were saying is that, right, we, we, I think we would benefit by an increased collaboration with the cognitive scientists. Mm -hmm. Sure, they're, they're one might think, oh, they're spatial and we're geospatial, but there's a lot of overlap as you're alluding to. And there's a there's a group, for example, at Northwestern University with David Utal and others that are doing some really good work that are kind of trying to bridge the gap. I would I'd like if there is a gap, I'm not sure if there is, but I'd love to clone them somehow and get that kind of a group in other <coughs> universities where we have this cognitive science, uh, geography, geospatial um, conversation at least. And then the other thing that you're talking about, which I totally agree with, uh, is I think about like the um, a flowing data blog and some of these other, they're visualizations. Sometimes there's maps in there and oftentimes there isn't. And so I've just designed this course at North Park University that I just finished teaching called Cartography and Geovisualization. Nice. And I had the students actually look at a lot of things that weren't maps. And some of the comments that I've just recently read about the course as we're wrapping it up is, my my view of 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 this has greatly expanded because of, we're not just looking at a choropleth map of you know neighborhoods in Chicago, which I actually had them yes. look at, but beyond that. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yeah. Geovisualization. You hit it right there. You know. I mean, there's these words that are getting popular in the Esri ecosystem. We talk about a systems-based approach of like the system of record, the system of engagement, and like, you know, the system of analysis where we're trying to understand things. And that system of engagement is really important. I think we're, we're entering and we're, we're in the data age. There's so much data. And what's really important is to be able to take that data and turn it into information. And the way you're talking about geovisualization and arming those, those people going into the workforce, those individuals to have those tools and be able to reach back on them, this ability to visualize and take these complex data sets and make it so a human can digest, it's extremely important. But at the same time, uh, this is where there's also the argument of, uh, should it be the job of the human to digest it? Or should it be the job of the machine to digest it and the human just to help guide the machine? Uh, we're entering a time period where the volume of data is uh, greater than our ability for our biological mind to be able to comprehend it. So what are we going to do about that? And that's where we're seeing the rise of neural networks and so we're seeing the rise of machine learning. But what is sometimes lost by decision makers is the lack of understanding that even when something comes out of that, it must be vetted. And even when something comes out of that, that must be vetted, it must be presented in a way that makes sense. So I think the ability to be able to tell the story 
and to be able to visualize it and put it in context, give it context is what matters. Whenever I say that, you know, um, I'm just going to make up a statistic here, which, you know, most people make up statistics, so we're a dishonest species. Uh, so I'm going to make up statistics here. Let's, let's just say that I'll tell you that 300,000 ice cream cones are going to be sold uh, next year, but that's down from 500,000 the year before. Um, now, what if I were to tell you, we go back one more step and say 300,000 was the norm for the year before that, and the whole decade, and the 500,000 was a spike that happened in the middle. I could, depending on when I choose to cut that story, I can make it doom and gloom, or I can make it that last year was awesome. That goes back to a saying of, you know, the uh, the secret to a happy story is knowing when to roll the credits, right? So, uh, because it all changes over time. Uh, so there's a danger in allowing the machine simply to tell you, uh, uh, you know, there's been, uh, you know, this standard deviation and change in a stack. Throw the alarms, panic, you know? Uh, there's, there's a danger to that without there being the human component to be able to understand it. And what I fear sometimes is that we are not appropriately armed as a group for survival to be able to interpret what's going to come next. So there's always that idea also, Ezra, Ezra's real good at catchphrases, you know, what's next is something that was uh, that was recently or what's coming next was recently a, a big slogan there. So, you know, I think that and see what others can't, right? That's, a, that's another good one. So I think that uh, we need to be able to arm ourselves, not just the geospatial sciences, but also doctors, you know, need to be able to understand what are they going to do whenever machines are talking so much about your health and analyzing all this health data? How do they create a correct narrative around that without having these sudden panics? You know, I mean, our business people, how are they going to, how are they going to run our economies now that it used to be, you didn't know what the average sales was for some small neighborhood in the middle of Iowa on like a random Tuesday. Now you can grab that data and figure that out. So what does it mean to be an economist all of a sudden? Like you have to be able to tell the story. You have to be able to create the narrative and you have to be able to kind of chop through the noise to see the overall pattern. And I think as geospatial scientists, as you said, we've been doing big data for a long time. Maybe not what is modern big data. We've been, we've been taking uh, large data sets, interacting with them and having to chop through noise and be able to create a consistent narrative. I think that uh, that skill set, that hard earned skill set that a lot of us have in the geospatial world of creating that consistent narrative is going to be important to be able to understand this mass amount of data in the data age. And I kind of hate what people call it the information age because it's really the data age a lot of times because uh, there's just a whole bunch of data and a whole bunch of information and misinformation. You can go find an enclave community that believes whatever you want any 24 seven, you know, um, but in reality, it's, it's, you know, how are you going to tell a truthful narrative that makes sense and can be digested and consumed. So. Yeah, very good points. That's one of the reasons why I have that, uh, it sounds super boring, David, but that GIS and public domain data book yeah. and my spatial reserves data blog, because I want people to understand that, as you well know, and I want other people to know, maps are very powerful and they need to be treated with respect and you, me, everybody now is a map creator. We're not just consumers of data. We can create spatial data. And platforms like ArcGIS Online are open. There's no SRE data police saying you can't put that data up. It is a completely open platform. So how do you, not just with that one, but other data portals as well, yeah. how do you then, can I trust that data? Yeah. Well, how often was it updated? You know, the standard yep. metadata stuff is really relevant more now than ever before. Yeah. Uh, I'm pulling data and in 60 seconds, I could have a really <coughs> compelling looking map, right? Yep. In, in ArcGIS Online or in other platforms. But do I know where all that data came from? No, I'd, if I don't know where it came from, I better find out. And so to your point that, yeah, we need to be critical consumers of data. But another thing I like about what you're saying is that, you know, thinking about moving forward in the, in the, in the profession and in the industry, if you've got a video of your community and from that video, AI and ML can, can detect every light pole, shrub, curb condition, everything, then the, what, what, entry-level, if we can call it that, entry-level GIS people will do in the future will radically change, right? They won't have to be digitizing parcels and maintaining that. It'll be, it'll be- It's already gone, yeah. man. Yeah. I mean, if you're, if, you're, if you're learning to be a technician and you're in college, I'm sorry. You're, you're being taught something that doesn't exist anymore. That's not going to cut it. You're going to have to, the, the technician jobs, that those have been gone. 
uh, back in the back in the early 2000s, like you know the 2005 to 2008. If you go to GIS Jobs Clearinghouse and you look at that, and you got out of college and you're trying to get a job without knowing some web development, good luck. And they would call it a GIS analyst position, and they would want you to be able to still have the skill sets of a technician. They'd want you to have analytical skills, and they would want you to be a GIS developer, all rolled in one. Um, and then you'd have to understand databases, part of that, understand the client server model, all kinds of architecture, things that are going on technologically there. Um, so I, I, if anything, I would say the technician job's been dead since like really the, the, that kind of mid 2000 range. Um, and it, the other reason, it's a great thing though. Thank God that it's dead. Because if you have a geospatial mind and all you're gonna do is heads up digitize all day, you, you might as well, that, that, that's, that's terrible. So here's the thing. We talked about survey one, two, three. We talked about, you know, collector. We talked about all these things that people who are using like an Esri ecosystem and even a lot of the open systems have the ability to empower the average person to go in and create data. So why should a geospatial person back in the office be the one that's digitizing something related to a water system when there's a guy who works on that water system, worked on it for 30 years, knows everything about it? That should be the person putting that data in. And the role of the geospatial person in that organization needs to be to be the advocate to empower the person and teach that person how to do that. And what you're going to run into and what you really need to do is learn these soft skills. If you're in college right now and you're listening to this, like, I hate to say it because I know we're on an educational one, but in reality, what you're not going to be taught most of the time, nine out of 10 times, is that those soft skills is what's going to matter for what's going to happen. That's going to, that's what's going to, you know, determine the level of adoption to have for your organization. When I talk about soft skills, I talk about being able to bring someone to your point of view or being able to let someone believe that by them doing this, it's going to make their job easier and their life better. And that, and a lot of that's about, not going as, oh, I understand GIS and there's all this great, you know, math behind it, databases and all this complex stuff. It's going, hey, what's your problem? How can I help? It's learning to ask questions instead of just make statements. You have to be able to go to those other people in the organization and ask questions and listen to them. It's about being a listener, not just a speaker with them. Determine what their needs are. Do that needs analysis and then be able to go back to them and say, you know, I heard that you were complaining about X, Y, and Z. Here's tools A, B, and C that solve X, Y, and Z. And I'll sit down with you and I'll, I'll show you how to do that. And, and not being condescending when you do it, sitting with them, teaching them how to do it. And then what's gonna happen is they're gonna hydrate better data into your system. And then you're gonna be able to build since that system of records better. You're gonna be able to build a better system of engagement for decision makers is what's gonna happen. And that's how you're gonna get it through the organization. But if all you're learning is points, lines, and polygons, I'm sorry. You're not being armed with the right tools to do it. Go take some sociology classes. Take some take some psychology classes. Like you, you want to be better at spreading geography. Go go listen to the social sciences and see what they're going to tell you about communication. The 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 best book I ever got out of um out of college was uh was actually a business communication book. And I've shared that with so many people. All my directors read it. A lot of people in the organization read it. And it's about learning people's communication styles and how to approach them. I think that. That is, that, is, that is vital. If you're gonna go into the geospatial field, you're either gonna to have to become a lot more technical or you're gonna to have to become that advocate. You're gonna to have to take that advocacy position and run with it in your organization, so. And on a related note, telling people, have your elevator speech, you know, yes. to your point though of yeah, listening is more important, yep. but also be prepared if someone says, well, why should, he, why should we hire you? We've got Google Maps. Yeah. Uh, okay, why, why what you bring matters and not just the technical things, but like you said, the, the, other, the other skills involved. So yeah. you might get, uh, like you being chief operating officer, you might get 30 seconds with your chief operating officer in the stairwell. Yep. Okay, be prepared. You yeah. might get uh, you know, three minutes with your board of directors, et cetera. So yes. having that in mind, uh, I work with a, you know, environmental uh, education, you know, environmental science uh, students in uh, universities quite often. And I say, you know, it's great that you care about the environment. I do. And hopefully we all do. But guess what? No one's going to pay you to care about the environment. Mm -hmm. What skills are you going to bring to EPA, to the Nature Conservancy, to, you know, yes. uh, United Nations Environment Program, et cetera, that, that yes. are going to make them say, we need to have you in our organization. <laughs> Those are the kinds of things, yeah, that uh, I always try to, yeah. Passion is fuel. It's like gasoline. But what good does gasoline give you without a car? 
which is what the skills are. I see plenty of people walking around just carrying this gasoline, thinking they're doing something great. And I'm like, what car are you gonna put in? What, what are you bringing to the table? How are you gonna get from point A to point B? Because all that passion's gonna do, and honestly, if you don't have the skills to do something with it, it's like strapping gasoline to your bike, your back and going on a long hike. You're not gonna make it. So, but if you take that and you put it in a car, the skills, and you drive from A to B, it's gonna work. And if you have all the skills without the passion, you're gonna go nowhere also. You're gonna be a bitter, burnt up person within a couple of years. You're gonna get into it thinking, hey, I'm gonna make some money doing this. I got the skills and everything. And those are the ones that I see that don't make it. No passion and all skill never makes it, and all passion and no skill never makes it. So it's, you know, you got to be able to combine the two. Stop, stop, stop looking stupid out there. Like, go, like, 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 think this out. Like, like, use our brains here. Find, find a way to make it impact the bottom line. Find, because what you have to do, it goes back to the example. You have to find what the other person cares about. Then you have to make it about what they care about, right? So, like, I'm not going to be able to convince someone that in a, a megacorp that they need geospatial sciences. Like, like it, it can't be, you need GIS for the sake of GIS. But what's going to be is, do you know where all your assets are? What kind of liability do you have right now on that? Do you know if someone's, do you have so, I mean, do you have to buy new assets? What's the age of your assets? When's the next time that you're going to have an actual, like, kind of drop dead date on this infrastructure that was built? What's the cost going to be? You know what your cost is in 10 years? You know, and really a lot of times decisions can be made quarter to quarter. So if you figure out a way to bring up those that quarterly profit by doing something that is geospatial, you get what you want, they get what they want, you achieve national equilibrium, game theory says you're good, that's what you have to do. So, uh, but don't just go there and say, you need GIS because GIS is cool or for the sake of GIS, you know. Um, we're not gonna, sadly, we're so greedy and short-sighted, we're not gonna save the planet by uh, saying we should save the planet. We're going to save the planet by saying we can save the dollars. That's what's going to happen. So, well, you're you're the embodiment of a of a lifelong learner. You touched on the ability to change um, and think outside the box. I was reading this book about a year ago. Perhaps you've read it as well. It's called Never Lost Again. It was it's about the morphing of keyhole Earth viewer hmm. to Google Maps. So one of the interesting stories in there was after they. First of all, uh, they were in a board meeting. Hey, Google is going to buy us. Google, they don't do maps. They do now. Yep. Uh, that was one of the interesting moments. And the other one was in terms of thinking outside the box. So they went to Digital Globe up here in Colorado near me and said, okay, how much is it going to cost for you know, buying imagery for 100 cities around the world? And they came back yeah. with a, I don't know, a couple million dollars price. They came back to the, the Google team in, at California and they said, it's going to be $3 million to buy 100 cities. And the Google team looked at the people that had just done the investigation that took a month and said, well, why don't we just buy the whole planet? <laughs> so the point is, don't be afraid to think like big outside the box. Yeah. Now, sure, you and I and probably most people listening aren't going to have like infinite uh, amounts of cash or resources at their fingertips. But, but Argue your own limitations. 2020s, right. Think, think boldly. You know, we've got yeah. some really serious issues on the planet, and it's going to take, uh, as, you're, as you're hinting at, um, a lot of us working collaboratively in new ways in this decade. So being sensitive to your time, David, yeah. um, I just wanted to ask you, what do you think we need to be working on in this decade? What, what, is, like, what comes to mind to you that this is really key as, as a profession we need to be – now, profession is you know, expanding as we talked about, but what should we really be focusing on and tackling? <laughs> So I believe two things, and it's somewhat controversial, but I believe that if we are to survive as a species, uh, the primary thing we must do is manage the rate of human reproduction in one way or another by creating an incentivized uh, ecosystem where we can live in a better balance, uh, which we're planning that out in a lot of our, you know, a lot of nations. But what we have to do is I've even seen it in Mississippi, where I have lived through a time of economic change. And by creating a stronger economic area, we create stronger education and we create a more stable rate of reproduction, which creates better uh, environmental equilibrium. Uh, I believe one of the things that we must do is figure out how to increase economy, to increase education, to stabilize rates of reproduction. Otherwise, uh, it's with any population, it will continue to expand its consumption of resources to the point to where its environment can no longer support it. So if there's anything we can do, we must, uh, we must be able to increase economy, to increase education, to stabilize reproduction. Like those are the things that must happen. Um, and you know, one of the things that you kind of said there that uh, struck with me is uh, the fact that 
I am from a, uh, an interesting place for our, uh, for not the, no one told me that I was going to be able to run a very large tech company that has a global influence from South Mississippi. No one said that. No one, no one, no one really thought that was possible. A lot of people looked at me like I was insane whenever I tried to, to do this. Our company headquarters is Nashville. Our center for research engineering is in Biloxi. Um, it's, I hire people here. I'm one of the largest tech hiring groups in the area. Um, and if people were to argue limitations with me most of the time, like when you said, you know, you and I aren't going to have the resources necessarily to, you know, make these like multi-million dollars. That's why I said, argue your own limitations. This morning I was talking about director of operations for what my Senate campaign is going to look like one day, you know, cause that, that's what I'm going to do. Um, this is, I'm going to build a technological empire from Mississippi and no one's going to get in my way. That's what's going to happen. And as part of that, I have this vision and I have these goals and I have these ideas in mind for how I can influence global decisions how I can influence the species, all the steps that go in between. I have went from, uh, you know, I'm the first person in my family to ever graduate from high, uh, from high school, not college, high school. My parents, uh, my mom got her GED uh, eventually. My dad dropped out, never got his GED. He made it to the seventh grade. Uh, and then here I am with all of my different, um, you know, academic background of what I have acquired over time. I'm building this stuff. I'm hiring people. And what I've found a lot of times is when we no longer argue our limitations at all, but whenever we go for our grandiose plans and we push really, really hard for them, that other people around us become empowered all of a sudden. And one thing I didn't touch on is when I hire people, a lot of people I hire don't have geospatial backgrounds. Heck, half the people I hire don't have a college degree and they end up working with these major megacorps and doing all this stuff all from here without necessarily having that background because we have this giant vision that we're pushing towards. And I think that one of the things that really resonates for me about Esri and about Jack Dangerman and Laura Dangerman and their history and looking at like all the people from back in the day um, is whenever they founded everything in 1969, there was a great vision you know, and uh, they built the tools to try and get them there with their great vision. And then the tools became even more popular than the great vision. And now they're circling back to the great vision. It's always been there a little bit, but now you see with some of the stuff that the Dangermans are doing globally, you see like now they're really empowering themselves to be able to do that. But whenever, if we would have said the same thing about a young Jack Dangerman in Redlands, California, sitting there, you know, who's now a multi-billionaire by net worth, you know, I mean, no one would have thought that Redlands, California. Yeah, you you was can't be run a company from this little town or exactly. Southern Mississippi. That's right. It's the same. It's the same thing. And that's, that's the story. That's the narrative. That's what we have to go for is making that global change, doing something great and not arguing our limitations, but being realistic in how we approach our strategies and our, uh, sm our smaller term tactics. Take those micro tactics to create those larger macro strategies to create this ripple effect. And what you have to do is you have to build a team around you because you're not going to do it yourself. Build that team. It's about the team, not the individual. It's like the old African proverb. If you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. So go far together. Let's band together. Let's build our enclave groups that is our team so that we can make these changes. You have to be able to do it. Well, uh, it, it, when I saw Jack, I'd see him like once a year when I worked at Census, NOAA, and USGS. And he would, you know, this would be like in a stairwell or an elevator, you know, some hallway at some conference center somewhere. He'd go, Joseph from USGS. And I'm thinking to myself, how does he remember me with the thousands of people he's met the, since the last time he saw yeah. me? But, but to your point about building a team, yeah. because he can say he's very good at remembering where, who you are and where you work. So yes. you need to work with – you need to get together with you because you, could, you two could do great things together. And yeah. that and, you know, by connecting people and forming these teams, same with you guys. I mean when I was at uh, UNA last – University of North Alabama for the for folks listening – um, about a year ago yep. was the alumni geography conference and Neil Job came and so he was event. so inspiring. Yes. It was so wonderful because the students that were still in attendance there, they're like, and you graduated from here and you have how many employees and you're doing yep. X number of, of projects. Yes. That's incredible. So that yes. seeing those examples, I think are really inspiring. And I really salute all of the things that you folks are doing and 
we could chat more, but uh, being sensitive yeah. to your time, do you Absolutely. do you want to end with? Do you have a favorite map or a, a data set that you want to highlight for the listeners here? I mean, we all have our sort of favorite books, maps, or maybe a favorite mentor that uh, you've had in the past. So I have a favorite book is what I'm going to go with, which okay. is uh, Paulo Coelho's The Alchemist. So are you familiar with that, Joseph? No, no. Yeah, I highly recommend it. I cannot recommend it enough. If you want to read a book that will change your life, read The Alchemist. It is, it is literally uh, a strong part of the philosophy that I live my life by and how I've been able to uh, make so much change of coming from a economically disadvantaged position to where I am today and particularly growing up in a primary, my, primarily minority uh, neighborhood is the alchemist is really big. I recommend it to everyone that I can uh, is read the alchemist also. Uh, probably some Richard Bach, you know, Jonathan Lipton Siegel and uh, yep. illusions, that kind of stuff. So, uh, you know, I think all of that's strong, um, but seriously, the alchemist can't recommend it. Yet. So I appreciate it. You know, when I wrote that book on the hundred revolutionary discoveries in geography, mm-hmm. almost every single person in there that I highlighted in it, it's not just about people, but mm-hmm. they're all avid readers. Yes. So I, I always encourage folks uh, yeah, read in a wide variety of topics, not just your own interested subject. And then also when you're at an event, go outside the box and go to a, a, a track that is completely outside of your own field of knowledge. Yes. And you might learn something. So at the, a recent AAG, uh, American Association of Geographers Conference, I went to a social work um, thread for a whole morning. And, you know, I learned something about the techniques that they use, about their methodology. It was just eye-opening. It was grand. So yeah, I, I like what you're saying. And um, I appreciate the time that you've spent here, David. You are one of my inspirations and I hope that we can continue the discussion. And yes. I wish you all success in in your work, your personal life, all the, the big dreams and, and goals that you've got. This is a new decade and yes. I'm looking forward to Uh, working with you in the future. I just wish you all the best. Well, thank you for having me on and thank you for everything that you do as an advocate. There's uh, your name's big out there and you do a lot of stuff to make sure that the ball's moving in the right direction. So thank you. Uh, Thanks, but we're we're all in this together. Team effort is exactly what you were saying. That's right. Yes, sir. Thank you, David. See you, Joseph. 